In the name of the living God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Ever since I was a young boy, I've always been an avid bird watcher. I love birds. I found that one of the most interesting and intriguing birds of all is the woodpecker. I have three large hickory trees in my front yard, and the loud rat-a-tat-tat that the woodpeckers make as they drill their holes into those trees, especially this time of year, searching for bugs, always gets my attention. They're fascinating birds and that the secret to their success is really quite simple. When they find a suitable tree, they begin to drill holes. If no bugs are found, they simply move a bit farther over and begin to peck again. Over and over again, they drill until they meet with success. There are literally dozens of perfectly round, parallel rings up and down my three hickory trees. The woodpecker is a perfect example of how Satan plies his temptations on us. He'll try one temptation, and if unsuccessful, he'll just try another over and over again until he finds a soft spot, a weakness, that most vulnerable place within us, our Achilles heels, if you will, that he can use to his advantage and bring about our downfall and cause us to sin. He's a master at the fine art of temptation. Well, this morning we're going to take a close look at temptation. What it is, where it comes from, when and where we're the most vulnerable, and how we can begin to master it. We'll do so by looking to Jesus, who was the only human being who ever lived who was able to master temptation. We'll discover just how Jesus dealt with the devil's temptations, and we'll learn from his experience so that we might be able to effectively fight back against him when we're confronted with those temptations that he brings our way each and every day of our lives. Our reading from Luke's Gospel begins by telling us that Jesus had just stepped out of the waters of baptism in the River Jordan where everyone present there that day had seen the sky break open, watched the Holy Spirit descend upon him in the form of a dove, and heard that thundering, booming voice of God introducing Jesus as His only begotten Son. After that, after something as extraordinary as that, the witnesses to that event might have expected Jesus to sprout wings and to fly away to become some kind of Marvel comic book superhero who would cease being human in order to rescue humans, showing up just in the nick of time to snatch them out of danger. Only that didn't happen, did it? What did happen was that he went from that spectacular moment to being led into the wilderness by the same Spirit who was there at his baptism. And now, Now he found himself all alone in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. It was just him, all by himself, all alone in the bleak stillness and the silence of the desert. And finally, someone else. The wrong someone else. That devious, evil personified, old ancient foe, the devil. 
The same devil who had succeeded in tempting Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden was about to ply his diabolical skills upon Jesus, the new Adam. His plan was a very simple one. He hoped to derail Jesus' mission on earth by tempting him to do evil, tempting him to fall into sin. If he could manage to get Jesus to give in to his temptations, then Jesus' entire mission to suffer and to die for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world, would have been utterly thwarted and defeated. Let me remind you that Satan is a mighty force to be reckoned with and not to be underestimated. He's a real being, a created yet rebellious fallen angel, and not just a symbol, not just a representation of evil, not just a a figment of your imagination. He can appear visible, in visible form, with an audible voice. What we must also remember, however, is that Satan is not equal to God. He is not omnipresent, nor is he all-powerful. But he and his countless entourage of fallen angels are working everywhere, attempting to lure, to entice, to seduce, to draw people away from God into his own hideous web of darkness and sin. That being said, there is some good news from the first epistle of John. Greater is He, capital H, that is in you than He, small h, that is in the world. So now the devil's temptations begin. For 40 days, Jesus went without food. At the end of those 40 days, He was weak and famished. Today's Gospel tells us that he ate nothing in those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. I guess that would be putting it mildly. He was probably starving. In each and every temptation, the devil was was subtly suggesting that Jesus deserved better than that which God was giving him. Why should the Son of God be famished and without food? Why should he be subject to earthly powers like Caesar when Caesar really should be subject to him? Why should he so much as stub his toe when there were a multitude of angels who could protect him from any kind of harm and danger that would ever befall him? Satan was actually suggesting to Jesus that he begin to doubt his heavenly Father's care for him and that his trust in him was misplaced. Just listen to how the devil begins two of his three temptations. If you are the Son of God, then, the literal translation is since you are, or in view of the fact that you are the Son of God. This is an affirmation, not a supposition. What Satan is doing is daring Jesus to prove who he truly is. By acting like the God that he truly is, instead of like the human being that He truly is. Jesus, if Jesus is not tempted by that idea, then this is really not a test at all. The real test is this. Since God is not providing you food out here in the wilderness, in the desert, why not make your own? Go ahead. Your hunger's crying out. Turn this stone into bread. Just do it. 
You may recall that Satan had tried this one before and it had worked very well for him. Taking the form of a serpent, he said to Adam and Eve, do you really believe that God is good? He told you not to eat from that one tree in the middle of the garden because he knew that when you did, you would be just as wise as he is. He's not your friend. He's holding out on you. So in all reality, Satan was tempting Jesus to disobey his Father's will by using his divine power for his own purposes instead of for the mission that lay ahead of him. His basic strategy was to make Jesus believe that God could not be trusted. But Satan responds to him by saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. The devil's ploy is to make us believe that if we want something done, we need to do it ourselves. That we don't need to rely on or trust in God. He tempts us to go outside of the parameters of God's will and to satisfy all of our own personal needs, desires, and wants all on our own. Just think about how the children of Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness and they were well taken care of by God's daily provisions of manna in the morning, quail every night, fresh water throughout the day which should be proof enough that God can always be trusted to provide us with enough to meet all of our needs. The second temptation was to take the easy way out. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of this world. If then you will worship me, it shall all be yours, he said. The devil is offering Jesus a kingdom without the cross. He was offering him the power, the power to control his own destiny. No suffering, no struggling, no pain, no sacrifice whatsoever. But think of it. If Jesus were to put on the crown without going to the cross, that would have meant that, that there would never be any forgiveness for you or me, or anyone. Jesus answered him by saying, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Well, we don't have to look very far to see the ramifications of all of this for us today, do we? Our world teaches us to take the easy way out. To avoid pain. To avoid sacrifice. To take the path of least, least resistance. Why give all that money to the church when you can spend it on a brand new fishing boat? Why not alter just a few numbers on your tax returns so that you can keep more of it for yourself? Why be faithful to your spouse when there are so many other interesting opportunities out there to pursue? Our culture tells us you only go around once in life so go for all the gusto you can get. Know this. Satan's goal is always, always to get us to replace God with other objects of worship. We call them idols. You heard the first commandment today. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. The third temptation was to not believe it 
until you see it. Having seen Jesus defeat him two times now by quoting Scripture, Satan gets wise and now quotes Scripture himself. He took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to them, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, here's where he quotes Scripture, He will give His angels charge over you to guard you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. The temptation he places before Jesus is really a test of God. It's the equivalent of saying to God, I won't believe you until I see you show it to me on my terms. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Jesus understood that if, if He were to begin His earthly ministry by dramatically jumping from the pinnacle of the temple, it would be completely contrary to God's plan for Him. A plan that entailed doing what God intended for Him to do. Jesus refused to take the bait. Or should I say, He refused to take the leap. There are many subtle ways that we can put God to the test, aren't there? We do it when we embark upon a path of our own choosing in life and then cry out to God, please bail me out, I made a mistake. When the path we've chosen causes us to fail and fall. We do it when we test the known boundaries of sin. We just recited them in the Ten Commandments. And our consciences begin screaming at us, look out! Beware. God says, here's the line I've drawn in the sand. And we say, well, let's just see how close we can get to it without stepping over it. When we do flirt with temptation, when we cross that line and fall into sin, it's because we refuse to take the escape route that God, whether we realize it or not, always places before us. He promises us through the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, that no temptation has ever overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your strength, but with the temptation, will be able to provide you a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That is, triumph over it, not succumb to it. In his humanity, Jesus endured all three of the devil's temptations. He did not succumb to them. He did so in order to fulfill God's plan, God's mission for him, to take our sins upon himself, to suffer and die because the only way we could be forgiven, the only way, we could be forgiven, was if the sinless, yes, the sinless Son of God made Himself the one and the only perfect sacrifice. The one payment, payment in full, that would be acceptable to God for the forgiveness of our sins, for yours and mine. The temptations of Jesus had to be real. They had to be real for this one consoling truth. 
This comes from the writer of the letter to the Hebrews. For we do not have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us in a, who cannot sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every way was tempted as we are, yet without sin. To be able to sympathize with us, Christ had to fully experience the devil's temptations. And he could only do so in his humanity. Jesus, the very Son of God, begotten for before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, became a human being for all of us. Through Jesus, we've learned that temptations often come to us on the heels of a spiritual high in our lives. Think about it. Jesus had just been baptized. He had just been declared to be God's beloved Son right before the Spirit led Him out into the wilderness to be tempted. We've learned that temptations often come to us at a time of physical weakness, when we're exhausted, when we're spent, emotionally drained, and therefore extremely vulnerable. Jesus was famished and no doubt thoroughly exhausted. We've learned that temptations come to us when we're all alone, and lonely, with too much time on our hands. Jesus was all alone in the desert for how long? Forty days. We all know the old adage, idleness is the devil's workshop. Well, there's just one more question I posed earlier that has yet to be answered. And that is, just how does the devil go about tempting us? How does he do it? Oh, he has his ways. To answer that question, I'm going to share with you a very simple, pragmatic, fourfold analogy that Christian author and speaker Chuck Swindoll gives. And I believe that that analogy will go right to the root and heart and core of how Satan tempts us. First, he lays out the bait. Satan knows people like a skilled angler knows fish, he knows our habits. He knows our favorite places to hang out. And then he prepares a tailor-made lure and drops it right in front of our noses. Second, now comes the appeal. He can't make us bite, but he does know what happens inside of us when we catch a glimpse of that tantalizing bait. Our sinful human nature draws us toward it. We linger over it. We toy with it. We roll it over in our minds until it consumes our imaginations and our thinking. Third, the struggle begins. Immediately, our conscience alerts us. It jabs us in the ribs, warning us of the danger. We know that it's wrong to take a bite. We may even see the barbed consequences of poking through the bait. But Satan's invitation looks oh so delicious. What are we to do? Fourth, the temptation ends with a response. Either we resist or we yield. We swim away or we swallow it whole. Anyone who has resisted knows the feeling of freedom that that decision brings. On the other hand, anyone who's yielded knows the feeling of guilt and shame that follow 
and the pain of the hook in your mouth. Well, the devil may be clever, and he may be a master of temptation. But remember this, he is not all-powerful. When we find ourselves dangling on temptation's hook, we must remember that he's not the one making the decision. We are. And the decision comes down to this, plain and simple. It's either yes or no. Yes, we take the bait. No, we don't. I love the advice that the Apostle Paul gave to his young brother in Christ, Timothy, where he said, shun, and that word can also be translated as flee, shun or flee from temptation. One translation puts it this way, run away as fast as you can. When asked the question about how to deal with temptation, one little girl in Sunday school said, when Satan comes knocking at the door of my heart, I send Jesus to answer the door. When Satan sees Jesus, he says, oops, I'm sorry, I must have the wrong house. <laughs> James the Apostle said, resist the devil and he shall flee from you. Mastering temptation. By no means an easy task. It's a daily pursuit, a lifelong pursuit, one that we can never fully master this side of heaven. The only one who ever mastered it was Jesus. When we fail, which we so often do, the good news is that Jesus, who died to take away all of our sins, will always be there lavishly offering us the gift of His forgiveness whenever we fall. Let us pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, lead us not into temptation. Don't allow us to be led into temptation, but when the temptation comes, help us to resist it. Deliver us from evil. For when we do sin, Lord, we need the forgiveness, the grace, the love, the mercy, the kindness that only You can give. So give us the strength. Give us the power of Your Holy Spirit that we can resist every temptation that comes our way in life. And when we don't, that we turn to You seeking Your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.